Welcome back to the Warriors podcast. I've got Angela and Amanda back with me, of course, but I also have Elizabeth back with me. So first of all, if you have not listened to the first podcast with Elizabeth Schutz, you need to go back and start there because it was a brilliant podcast. And we're really just continuing the conversation we started with. We began our conversation by talking about what what is a safe person to have above you, to be mentoring you, advising you, counseling you. We discussed being labeled. We discussed having boundaries. But in this conversation, I want to discuss the diagnosis that this lead pastor has had, although she is against, like we've said many, many times, she's against therapy, against psychiatry. And if we can help it, we are also against medicine and we are against calling the police for any reason. With all of that said, I have Elizabeth Schutz, who in case you don't know, in case you have forgotten, she is a licensed professional counselor. She has her master's in biblical counseling from Dallas Theological. So thank you for coming back on with us, Elizabeth. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Your other conversation was so enlightening. And so I'm very excited for this conversation. What I want to begin with is the diagnoses that we've brought up before. We've brought this up in one podcast. I'm pretty positive that it was the fourth podcast of the Enough series where we talked about the lead pastor, not only deciding, oh, you have a spirit of lust, you have a spirit of control, spirit of rebellion, but she's even gone as far as to tell people, you have schizophrenia, you have bipolar disorder, you have depression, you have um, multiple personalities, which some of us have had some training, like I said before, we have some training in mental illnesses and in training in working with people with complex trauma, but Elizabeth is the professional here. So what I'd like to start with is when you have a client and they are exhibiting traits of schizophrenia or bipolar, and schizophrenia can be confused with psychosis even, how, what is that process that you go through as a licensed therapist before you diagnose someone with something? Um, well, I think the first is I don't use assessments that are not qualified to use, right? There are certain assessments as a master's level clinician I am allowed to do. And then there are some that you have to have a, a doctorate to do. You have to be a psychologist or psychiatrist to do. So first I make sure I don't step outside of my qualifications as a master's level clinician, I really try to educate my clients that they are not their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. A lot of clients that I work with in this population have may have experienced mental health services very early on, especially if they were involved in CPS, foster care, juvenile justice services. They have been given a regimen of medications and told that you are bipolar. Mm -hmm. Well, we've learned a lot um, about trauma these days that a lot of these things have their roots in unaddressed trauma and trauma-related responses. So if my needs are not getting met, I'm not getting the things that I need to feel valued and affirmed, well, I'm likely going to have some depression. Or if the expectation in my family is that I have to be perfect, 
well, how does that play out in anxiety? So Mm -hmm. I think first we have to understand that a lot of these things for most people are related to trauma and to responses to wounds that they have received, right? And there's different causes when we talk about like bipolar. Is it organic? Is it trauma related? Is it substance use that is contributed? So I even educate my clients if they come in with a bipolar diagnosis and go, hey, there can be different contributing factors and it can be really difficult and take time to sort out. So we're going to start by treating the symptoms. I do these assessments to help understand what are the symptoms you're experiencing. So I really like to language it as symptoms so that they are not their diagnosis. And the good news is we can help treat these symptoms. And so there's a sense of hope. There's a sense of feeling like they have tools and have the, the possibility of living a different life. And that's true for a lot of individuals with mental health issues is that with medication and therapy, people can really make major improvements in the quality of their life. That's so good. So would you ever, let's say you had a client come to you who was exhibiting traits of schizophrenia. And I bring that one up the most because that for some reason is the most common diagnosis that, that our that the lead pastor is giving out, you know, Amanda, I'm I'm speaking for you. I'm saying this because I know you've said this already. She has a family member who has schizophrenia. I've worked with people who exhibit those traits. And I know you've had clients who exhibit those traits. How would you deal with someone who's coming in and maybe they don't have that diagnosis yet, but you're going, "Mm, I'm pretty sure. I think it's really important that, right. We have a diagnostic criteria that clinicians are trained to use when making diagnosis and diagnosis help us to understand the symptoms people are experiencing so we can best treat them. And that's how I language it. Um, The key symptoms that we're looking at with schizophrenia are delusions, uh, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disordered or catatonic behavior and negative symptoms. So not expressing any feelings or emotions. If someone is functioning and maintaining a job, they've not had a psychotic break, they're not having hallucinations, they're not having delusions of grandeur, probably not schizophrenia. Um, We normally see people experience schizophrenia as the brain pruning begins to happen at the end of adolescence, when people move in that 18 to 25, there's another round of brain pruning that happens. That's why we see people have breaks usually around the college time. That's when most people, when we see that there's a kind of age range when people are most vulnerable to experiencing that. Mm. And that's why it's really important that anyone giving that diagnosis is trained to understand the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual and criteria for assessing and diagnosing, right? You have to meet certain criteria in order to have this, right? And the DSM gives us guidance on what amount of the criteria has to be met in order for someone to have this diagnosis. I do have clients that come in. I don't treat individuals that have organic driven schizophrenia because they don't do well on the residential level in this type of program we have. But I have a lot of women that have had a past um, schizoaffective or have been told they're schizophrenic, but people have not considered the impact of trauma and how trauma can have some symptoms that if you're not assessing appropriately or uh, have all the training, you can come to the conclusion that they, the hallucination is psychotic and not trauma related. 
So this is where training is really important, seeing a qualified professional. Um, and so, you know, going back to the the young lady reference, like were there delusions, were there hallucinations happening? Was there disorganized speech, catatonic behavior? That means that a person is there, but they cannot move their body or speak. Um, if someone's in that type of state, negative symptoms, is there just really flat affect? Like they're not any emotion, they're totally numb and disconnected. Those are some symptoms to help indicate that would say, hey, maybe you need to get professionally assessed. And when treated and managed, if it is schizophrenia, people can lead pretty successful lives. The challenges with schizophrenia is people like how they feel when they're not on the medication. Same thing with bipolar, but they have mania. A lot of people like those manic states because there is that energy and they are not in their right mind. So they don't understand the role the medication plays. But once they're medicated, a lot of people, they're like, I like how I feel. I, I, I'm able to engage. The problem is they like, I must, I'm fine. There's so much stigma and shame around the diagnosis. They don't want to be on the medication. So they go off medication and they end up as we see so many on the streets. Oh, that's good. Amanda, did you have something you want to say? Yeah, no, that totally, um, I was texting my husband to ask if I could share that or not. I was like, listen, (laughs) (laughs) he actually experienced something similar when he went off of his anxiety medication for his post-traumatic stress disorder stuff from work. Yes. I was going to say, can you explain what that was from, from work? It's been overseas several times. And so we've just walked through that together and he would go off his medications at times and no therapy or therapy and medication and the most helpful and the furthest that we've seen him go is when he is in therapy, um, even if there's not a direct need for it, but when he's in therapy and on medication, he just blossoms Mm -hmm. like life is better. Life is amazing. And that was something with this group, they would always go against and they would always say, you don't need to do that to the point where when and I know this is totally off topic. No, no, it's not. This is good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> where when I had had our first child, we had three, when I had my first daughter or yeah, she's the only one they would, I'd gotten put on antidepressants because I had really bad postpartum. Well, they were making me feel really weird. And I didn't like, I didn't have the conversation with my doctor. Hey, these make me feel weird. I had them with this leader instead because she had become doctor first instead of my doctor. So it was just a super unhealthy dynamic. And she, and I didn't tell her when I went on them, but I told her that I was on them. And she was like, throw them out, throw them down the drain. You need to get rid of those. So I did. And I got worse and I fell so hard into depression and just that like suicidal mentality that there had been enough attempts that my husband who was already he's already dealing with all his trauma and then on top of mine it just we would clash a lot and so for our household there were so many demons all the time running rampant it was just crazy the amount of control that I had allowed them to have over us during that time that I can see outside looking in I can see looking at our life and seeing oh well once they got a hold of you though once this group got in your marriage you were good And for us, it was like, no, actually, the further we pulled away from them and towards healthy alternatives, that's how the better that we got. Right. I'm like, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, it does make sense because I'm glad you said that. I wanted to find a segue to get to the medication piece because they are very anti-medication. And for a season, I was as well. But now that I have 
had my own therapy and I have been around people who have been on medication and I've done the research for me, I've, I've come to recognize sometimes you really need that. Sometimes there is a, a a literal and Elizabeth, you're probably going to say this way better than me, but there's, there's a literal chemical imbalance in your brain. And yes, we pray. Yes. We believe for miracles. Like God can do a miracle whenever he wants to. But sometimes you need the practical piece to have that medication balance some things out. And sometimes people need to be medicated for a very long time. Sometimes it's short and some, and they might not ever get off of it. I don't know, Elizabeth, what, what would you say to that? I'm so thankful that we have medication to help support recovery. Mm-hmm. Just like we are really grateful we have medicine for diabetes and cancer and different infections right? They improve the quality and well-being of our life. And that's what psych medication should do as you do the therapy, right? Psych medication alone may reduce some of the symptoms, but it doesn't address the underlying things that are driving the symptoms. Anyone that's needing medication, if they look to medication as a fix-all, they're going to be disappointed. I've got clients they are like, I really wish I didn't have this. It's like, yeah, if there was a pill you could take, love it. But right. what medication does do, if your anxiety is way up here, it's really hard to use your skills. It's really hard to engage and to be effective in, in your life or in therapy. So what medication does is it turns down the intensity of a lot of those symptoms. And that's how medication, I think, should be used. So we have a great psychiatrist that sees our resident. She assesses, she prescribes but it's done in conjunction with the treatment that they're receiving to increase coping skills, to improve self-efficacy, communication, healthy boundaries, right? If you have poor boundaries, of course you're going to feel anxious about going to mom and dad's house because you're going to be afraid that they're going to bring up that conversation and you can't say no, right? So what it does is it gives you a little bit reduction in that intensity. So you have the reduction in anxiety. It allows you to go, I can, I can say, and if you need it for the rest of your life, if it helps you engage in those skills, then do it right. It's about helping you have a healthy and engaged life. And if medication is part of that combination, there's nothing wrong with that. And I applaud people who are seeking therapy and medication and doing that in conjunction, it takes courage and you are taking ownership of your life. And you're saying, I'm a powerful person. I don't have to be a victim to these symptoms. I don't have to have shame about these symptoms and I can get help for these things. Mm -hmm. I think about how God created us on purpose, mind, body, soul, spirit. And we can all say that that's connected. And I'm pretty positive. We've even discussed that in this organization. You know, the lead pastor will say that statement. But then we have to think about what that means. We have psychology, we have science, we have the the physical, the natural, the spiritual. It can't be separated. And sometimes medication helps with the physical and the brain part. And sometimes so so to your point, Elizabeth, if you're just using medication, yes, you're at risk for missing a lot of other pieces because again, they all really should go together. And some people do abuse medication. Well, no matter how you cut it, if you lean far more towards one than the other, you're at risk for something, which is why we need them to work together. So in this organization, 
they lean heavy on the spiritual piece and we don't really do practical. So we're at risk for re-traumatizing people who, who really have come out of the woodworks. I've had five conversations this week with people I didn't know until this week who came to me to say, um, I'm not okay. And, and all of them could say to some degree in some form of words that they have been traumatized. I love the working together, using all of the pieces together to enhance your life. And, and we said that in a, a different podcast as well, your relationship should be life-giving, should be life-enhancing. And the medical care that you're receiving should be enhancing your life. If you're taking medication, should be enhancing your life. You're going to know when you, it's an enabler or when it's becoming a, something that you're abusing. At some point, you're going to know, right? One other thing I want to bring up, and we're going to try to keep this fairly quick. There was a girl who, she's not a girl, she's a grown woman, who is severely autistic. And she was taken through a deliverance for autism because the belief was it really wasn't autism. It was a demonic spirit. And if they could cast that out of her, she would be normal. Well, that didn't go well. So Elizabeth, can you speak to when you have someone who is autistic or when you have someone who has a severe mental illness, when you're forcing them through any, anything, maybe if you're doing trauma work or EMDR, I don't know, you can, you can navigate it better than me. What happens when we force things on people who have something serious like autism? Um, no one should ever be forced, right? I, there's a lot of conversation I, around even people with schizophrenia. If they're on in the street, how do we enforce med compliance? There's a lot of ethics around that because we know that if someone's on the street, there's probably some huge safety risks. And there are some individuals that are unmedicated are dangerous to themselves and others. So there's a lot, there's, there's ethical guidelines to help in making those decisions. So we work as best we can when we have those unique cases to not violate someone's autonomy. And when we have to step in for their safety, that we have a, a criteria that has to be met, right? Even when we hospitalize people for suicidal ideation, if someone is not coming on their own accord, the criteria has to be met if someone is a danger to self or others and poses a risk, right? You can't, you have to go to a judge. You can't just go, well, this is bad. You're not safe. It, there's there's checks and balances to ensure we don't violate people's autonomy. I am really careful not to violate the autonomy of my clients because they've had so much violation. And so what that looks like in a setting with the population I serve is letting them know they have a right to say, this is too much. This feels uncomfortable. And there are times like doing trauma work, there's moments where we hit difficult, intense emotions. And if they feel like this is too much for them, they have to get to go, hey, I'm not comfortable going there. Or even if they say yes, but I can tell in their body language, it's a compliant yes and not a genuine yes. I go, hey, I just want to check in. I noticed you said yes, but the language in which you said yes made me wonder if you really aren't feeling comfortable with that mm. or invite the client. Hey, I just want to give you a moment before you decide if you feel comfortable talking about that. 
um, and exploring that, are you ready to go there? Check in. Does that feel when we're talking about doing some parts work and I've worked with a a client a long enough time and there's enough stability, even within the EMDR protocol, if something becomes overwhelming, we teach our clients, they have the right to say stop and end that processing at any point. Wow. Which does not happen. I am so glad that you said that because it doesn't happen. If you refuse a deliverance, um, you, you're really given a talking to until you comply until you just say, okay, okay, I'll do it. Or Angela and I were pinned against each other in this area several times where one of us may be called or text the other one, Hey, come out, come hang out with me. And then you show up and you got, you know, Angela and several others, or Angela would show up and she's got me and several others or, or, or you show up and, you know, your friend isn't even present. It's just, <laughs> it's just the pastor or the sidekick or whomever else. And you're like, oh no. And so you're, you end up in a situation where you just comply and you just start to go, okay, okay. And sometimes, you know, some of us have been locked in rooms. Some of us have been placed in rooms where someone is standing in front of the door but then other people have been physically restrained and held down. And I know at the job that I used to work at, I worked in a safe home and it was very strict about you put your hands on a client. You better be able to have had a good reason for it. And you better be able to back it up in court or you don't do it. And you would be surprised at how many people or how many situations you would think you would have a right to put your hands on a resident thinking like, oh, safety, right? But then when you really go through a training or when you really get in that situation or you think about having to back it up in court, you're like, I did not have the right to do that. And it actually is violating that other person's right to choice, their dignity, Elizabeth, could you speak to the, the, the restraining part? Because I think that's something that I think helps with boundaries, but also so many of us have, have been physically restrained. So what, why do we, why are we careful? I guess this is my question. Why are we careful with putting our hands on people and what are the, when do we, and when do we not just a good basic. When do we put our hands on people? When do we not? If we restrain people against their will and we don't have grants to do that, right? We're violating someone's personhood. There are a lot of people that have been to psychiatric facilities that have been traumatized because their rights have been violated, right? They've been restrained um, when there was not a need to, or this restraints became excessive. And that's a huge tension in how do we maintain safety? And I love the training that we use and, and Liza, you have gotten certified in this training. And so what it is about is, is restoring the dignity of the person. And it's always through connection first and using our connection relationship to calm and ground the person and restraints is only in light of someone being a risk to harming themselves or others that we're helping to calm them enough and restrain them enough until they can return to maintaining their own self-control, right? Meaning that they can calm enough where they no longer pose a danger to themselves or others. It is the least amount of restraint necessary. And it's only through the relationship, even while you're straining, you're helping to calm and coach that person to regain their dignity. No one feels good about themselves when they're out of control. 
Mm -hmm. No one likes how they feel when they've lost their temper at their kid, right? We were like, I feel so bad. I can't believe I just lost it, right? We don't feel good when you do that. So let's say you're a psych client and you're having a crisis and you are out of control. Um, That does not feel good. You don't feel good about the way you behaved. So restraints is about helping return that person back to a place of self-control, not us controlling them. Oh, yes. That, so the training you're talking about, and I know we need to wrap this up, it's called Handle with Care. And for anyone who wants to know more about Handle with Care, I'll post a link. It is by far my absolute favorite training I've ever received. Like I was thrilled that I was the one chosen to be certified to teach that our team at the time, because that, that training is brilliant. And one of my favorite lines that I typically spend a lot of time on when I teach this is if you put your hands on someone, it should only ever be an extension of the connection you already have. And I love that statement. So if yes, if you're putting your hands on a person to physically restrain them, you are returning them back to calm. You're returning them back to their dignity. You're giving them their power and their dignity back. And I'm never going to put my hands on someone that I don't have a relationship with. And, and, and if I put my hands on someone to restrain them, it is for their safety. And I am talking them through that. So second you lock, you lock arms with a person. Hey, I'm Liza. I'm here. This is why I'm holding you. And like, Hey, I'm only holding you until we can calm down. Will you breathe with me? That kind of stuff. Thank you so much again. Like I said, we could continue this conversation all day, but I want to be mindful of everyone's time. Does anyone have any closing thoughts before we end this podcast? I keep having this question in my head of like, did you ever feel like you were touched by them in a connection manner where it was like that? No, No. I'm sitting here reeling and I'm, I'm truly trying to find a moment and there's none. If anything, I felt more violated. I felt more disconnected, just all of it. Oh yes. Well, yeah, no, I don't think anybody had any kind of, any kind of connection while that was happening. Elizabeth, thank you so much. I know we need to wrap up. I I love that you were here. Elizabeth has given us a wonderful list of resources. I'm going to post them in the show notes. Thank you, ladies.